This episode of Pharmacy to Dose is proudly sponsored by Chiesi. Chiesi is a family-owned, research-focused pharmaceutical company. And as a sustainable company accredited with both a B Corp and Benefit Corporation status, Chiesi is making global changes that benefit patients, providers, and healthcare organizations with forward-looking and impactful initiatives. Chiesi appreciates the integral role that clinical pharmacists play in patient care and are proud to support this community. To learn more, visit chiesi.pharmacytodose.com. The Critical Care PRN is dedicated to fostering the role of critical care pharmacists as essential members of the multidisciplinary patient care team. The Critical Care PRN's goal is to optimize drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, including how to become a member, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that website is critprn.accp.com. Welcome to Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast, a partner of the ACCP Critical Care PRN, and I'm your host, Nick Peters. And wherever you are and however you are listening, thank you. So trying something a little different for the first conference of 2024, right? So the Society of Critical Care Medicine, SCCM, hosts their 2024 Critical Care Congress in Phoenix, Arizona. So uh, this is Saturday, January 20th. Plane takes off a little later today, meeting everyone in Phoenix. Very excited. Uh, If you're not at this conference, though, even if you are, we're going to have mini recaps each day starting today through Tuesday from talking to a 2024 Congress co-chair, reviewing pharmacist star research presentations, discussing presentations with pharmacist speakers, and more. So this will be fun. Kind of let me talk about all the Congress has to offer. Now, some of you may be wondering, yes, Anthony and I are still doing our conference recap, right? Most of the information in the reviews are going to be things that we probably didn't get to dive into in the larger episode. So, Congress technically starts tomorrow on Sunday, but the CPP Congress Forum is today, followed by uh, that CPP reception. If you're wondering, CPP, the uh, clinical pharmacy and pharmacology section within uh, critical care medicine, and the... I was a speaker in last year's pre-Congress forum. It's a great time. If you're in Arizona today, definitely make sure to stop by. I encourage everyone to attend if you can. Now, for the Saturday edition of this SCM Congress Review, uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about the Congress schedule, things that stand out to me um, from diving into that schedule, highlight where where the pharmacists are going to be throughout the conference. Then, Everyone is getting a sneak peek of the SCCM Digital Congress bonus presentations. So what is this, you also may be asking. So this is free for SCCM Select members, but also free if you're registered for the in-person SCCM conference. And it's essentially a boatload of extra clinical sessions and presentations. I think a lot of them are hidden gems, some really good information here. These presentations can be available to listen to uh, in February 2024, and uh, we're lucky to discuss three of these presentations with three amazing pharmacist presenters, Olivia Marchanda, Heather May, and Nicole Palm. 
uh, joined the podcast, uh, answered a few questions about their presentations. Um, just a little sneak peek because there's tons, tons more in all three of them. You're going to be very, very excited when we get to discussing this. So consider this an appetizer, right, as we get ready for all that Congress can offer. 2024 SSCM Congress preview, highlighting pharmacist speakers. What a great start to the daily reviews. And here we go. So from a quick review of the schedule, you could just tell from the schedule alone, the agenda, that the days will be a little more packed with the conference ending one day early. And I don't think I realized that until someone someone said that to me the other day. Now, for the preview, I went through the schedule in painstaking detail. So I want to highlight some sessions where you'll recognize familiar pharmacist faces and names. Now, for time purposes, I won't be able to highlight every session in this review that has a pharmacist speaker. I'm going to highlight a few. Um, please don't take it personally if you if your session doesn't get shout out, if I didn't highlight your name. There's just only so much time in this. But uh, each day, if you follow on social media at Pharmacy to Dose, uh, I'm going to send out a uh, image that has all the pharmacist speakers throughout the day. Uh, each day, right? So Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. So be on the lookout at Pharmacy to Dose. If you're not following me, what are you doing, right? So this is definitely the time to do that. Now, uh, as we start off, we kind of go through, let's start with Sunday. And uh, 10.30 a.m. on Sunday morning is a hot time slot for clinical sessions. You have multimodal vasopressors, opioid use disorder in the critically ill, novel antifungal treatments, development of the appropriately named Phoenix Pediatric Sepsis Criteria. So in those sessions, all will have a pharmacist speaker at some point. So whatever your interest, a pharmacist will be there to help educate and you can learn from. So Sunday's also filled with star research presentations featuring multiple, not only pharmacist moderators, but presenters. So uh, we're going to be able to highlight some of those pharmacist featured star research presentations in a day or two on another uh, recap. Very excited for that. Now, yesterday, right, that would be Friday, uh, January 19th, Critical Care Medicine, the journal, released multiple guidelines and position papers uh, online ahead of print that will get highlighted at Congress. And Sunday's conference day ends with sessions diving into one of them. So first things first, Sid Padawala uh, discusses the RSI guidelines that were published earlier this year, multiple pharmacist authors there. And then the day ends with senior pharmacist author Judy Jacoby discussing the newly published glycemic control in the ICU guidelines. And also shout out to Michael Siramatros, who will be moderating and also an author on these uh, guidelines. So uh, great stuff to dive into here. Very excited to hear all about what these guidelines are looking at. Now, uh, also, if we're talking about Sunday, uh, they have some round tables throughout the Congress. Uh, I'm leading one Sunday morning on the role of podcasting and education scholarship. If you're interested, stop by, share ideas, chat, say hello. Um, should be a good time. So as we move from Monday, I want to note that every Congress day starts with like honorary lectures. I think they're great sessions to attend and learn from. Highly encourage everyone to go. But this year, there are no, I guess you'd say, featured pharmacists, which is why I'm not necessarily diving into them on the preview, but still good stuff there. Now, uh, the day 
Still has those star research presentations throughout featuring, again, both pharmacist presenters and moderators. And one thing that's happening throughout all the days are the research snapshot theaters. So if you've never been to SCCM, you may be used to the more classic research poster presentations where you you stand by your poster, it's on a wall, you're answering questions during a specific block of time. You have that awkward thing, right, where you're standing and someone's standing looking at your poster, not saying anything. It's like the double dutch. Do I say anything? Do I not? But... um. These are the differences. Um, It's a little different because at SCCM, you'll present your research in a specific time block, still like that, but you do an eight-minute presentation in a section of the exhibit hall. So kind of a unique approach to presenting research. I like listening to the presentations. I like hearing the authors. It could definitely be more challenging to hear or learn from all the ones you want to learn about, right? Compared to posters, you could walk by, take them all in. Um, Just a little challenging. But these are happening all throughout Congress days. So that's in the exhibit hall. You kind of walk through and hear some things. um, Good stuff there. So on Monday, as we get back to our Monday schedule, at 11 a.m., there's a session that will highlight the recent position paper from ESICM and SCCM on the reporting of norepinephrine formulation. Shout out to uh, PharmD authors Patrick Vyaruszewski and Brittany Bissell-Turpin, the latter of which will be presenting during this session. Now, 10.30 on Sunday was the hot clinical session time. Uh, on Monday, it's 1.30, and we have two great sessions filled with pharmacist speakers. One, looking at alcohol withdrawal management that I got to say, I'm not going to spoil them yet. They have some of the best titles of their presentations in the session in the entire Congress. So good. Um, and then another discussing the management of heat-related injury and illness in the ICU. And Monday closes out with the SCCM awards and the fellows reception, right? So we'll work on getting boots to the ground to ensure you get a proper recap of the fellows reception similar to last year. Um, So uh, I can't believe we're already to Tuesday's schedule, the last day of the conference. What I like about Tuesday is the schedule does feel like it's more spread out. Get a chance to hear so many of these pharmacy speakers, less of them presenting at the exact same time. So Throughout this day, throughout Tuesday as well, there are unique session ideas. They have like a critical care quiz show, an additional session highlighting late-breaking studies, those star research presentations, honorary lectures, pro-con debate, etc. But topics with pharmacy faculty are numerous. Beta blockers in shock, fluid controversies, pro-con debate on ICH management, use and misuse of stress ulcer prophylaxis, endocrine emergencies, and more. But now, remember, we start the conference Saturday night tonight with the CPP reception, and then the conference essentially ends with the CPP year in review on Tuesday at 2.30. A must-attend for everyone. This will be great. Um, The plan as of now is to get to feature uh, all the speakers and moderator to have some fun on one of our last reviews. So uh, you'll get to hear from the presenters and moderator themselves. So we're just hitting the surface of the great sessions throughout 2024 Congress. I'm so excited. Remember, at Pharmacy to Dose on social media, I'll post daily schedules highlighting those pharmacist speakers throughout the conference. Now, let's join our pharmacist presenters as we discuss their digital Congress bonus education sessions. This episode of Pharmacy to Dose is proudly sponsored by Chiesi, providing innovative pharmacologic therapies for over 85 years. Chiesi is committed to supporting the clinical pharmacist community and the patients you serve. To learn more, visit chiesi.pharmacytodose.com. 
Now, our next featured presentation, you'll find this in the uh, SECM Digital Congress, uh, the overall presentation titled To Fuel Up or Press On Fluids Versus Vasopressors in the Management of Septic Shock. Put the You're going to want to star this one. This is a, a who's who of names. You got Ashish Khanna and Seth Bauer as moderators, Gretchen Sasha as well as one of the other presenters, but we are so lucky. We were able to get one of them as well. The presentation entitled Fill the Tank or Squeeze the Pipes, Fluid Administration over Early Vasopressor Therapy for the Management of Shock. And we are joined by the presenter herself, special guest Olivia Marchanda. She is the Surgical ICU Critical Care Clinical Pharmacy Specialist at the Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland, Ohio. Olivia, welcome. How are you doing today? Thank you so much. I'm doing well. So I have to ask, whenever we have someone come on that's either surgical ICU or medical ICU pharmacist, have to ask where you stand on the important issue of SICU versus SICU. What, are, what do you refer to the unit as? I am a SICU versus SICU. I didn't actually know people referred to it as SICU, to be honest. But we have like specialized ICUs in some of the MICUs and they have like a liver unit and they specifically call it MILU because they, I think, tried to come up with something that sounded reasonable uh, that included liver ICU in there. <laughs> for the record, I, I'm on the record. We talked with Stephanie about this. It should be the LICU. What a miss yeah. as a name. I'm on record Probably. that if anybody has a liver ICU and that is their nickname, you need to let us know. I feel like that's a big <laughs> miss. Remind Stephanie that I said that because if it ever gets renamed, there's gonna, I wonder if, there, if it gets renamed, they'll have to be like honorary. We'll cut the banner. We'll do all the things. Um, yeah. But I uh, want to highlight your uh, awesome presentation. And first things first, right? We're no stranger to fluids or vasopressors on this podcast. But fill us in, remind us, what do those surviving sepsis campaign guidelines actually recommend when they talk about early fluids and vasopressors and septic shock? Yeah, so the guidelines really aren't very clear on this question. So we know that the initial recommendation of 30 cc's per kilogram exists really based on observational data. So it's really a weak recommendation, low quality evidence. Beyond that point, though, there's no strong recommendations whether or not to give more fluids or to start vasopressors for patients who remain hypotensive and hypoperfused. So they just state that there's insufficient evidence to make a recommendation on the use of restrictive versus liberal fluid strategies in that first 24 hours of resuscitation. They do make a comment that suggests starting vasopressors early, but it's really not clear how early they should be started in re relation to the timing of volume resuscitation. It's almost one of those statements that, that is tossed in that you have three to four questions that stem from that, <laughs> like and how yes. you apply or when you do certain things. Um, so I'm a big pro-con list person, especially when we're making challenging decisions, decisions where it feels like either of these could get argued one way or the other. What fits in better than this topic? So um, what are considerations? What are kind of broad things to think of when you're thinking of fluids and vasopressors? If we were making that pros cons list, what would that look like for these two? Yeah, I think that's a great question because there's really pros and cons of both strategies here. 
Um, it's established that we know fluid resuscitation is a key component in managing septic shock to restore intravascular volume. And that hypotension really comes down to relative hypovolemia and septic shock and then reduced peripheral vascular tone. So we know that intravascular volume is important to sustain venous return for increased peripheral vascular resistance to actually cause an increased perfusion pressure. So without significant um, volume resuscitation, your vasopressors really aren't even going to work well for you. So that's definitely a pro of administering additional fluids rather than starting early vasopressors. Additionally, by avoiding the use of vasopressors, you could prevent the need for an ICU admission since the administration of vasopressors typically requires patients to be in the ICU. So that's definitely a benefit of trying additional fluid versus starting early vasopressors. Of course, there's downsides, and the major one that is of concern is potential for fluid overload, since this can result in delayed organ recovery, prolonged ICU stays, increased mortality. Um, and additionally, continuing to administer IV fluid is not necessarily going to impact systemic vascular resistance. So treating the underlying infection is most impactful here, but this is also a potential argument for the use of vasopressors earlier on to improve systemic vascular resistance and therefore increase. Um, blood pressure and map. Yeah, I always kind of think of the analogy, like you said, you know, you're pushing down the gas pedal, but you're out of gas in the tank, right? And there's kind of nothing right, to do exactly. with the fluids. So, um, right. Olivia, you do such a great job diving into two landmark trials, talking about restrictive versus liberal fluid restri um, fluid restrictions. Won't talk about those right definitely listeners be sure to go listen to the full presentation um in the digital congress but talk a bit about some of the surprising evidence regarding early timing of vasopressor initiation because hand up i will say we've had probably pro vasopressor early um mm -hmm. people kind of our guests on the podcast and this was you know it shows the answer is always somewhere in the middle um, this mm -hmm. is pretty surprising information. So what kind of what kind of info did you find when you started digging? Yeah, um, I thought the same thing when I was tasked with this topic is that well, it seems like we're leaning more towards early vasopressors on this topic. And there's definitely variable literature with a lot of these only being retrospective or single center studies. And so this presentation focused on um, not favoring early vasopressors. So the one study that I did find was from this volume chasers group. And I thought their findings were actually really interesting because they found a relationship with the increasing doses of vasopressors during the first six hours was associated with increased mortality. Um, but this association was no longer significant in patients that had at least two liters of crystalloids during that time frame. Um, so that kind of adds to the concept that if vasopressors are utilized earlier, it still is critical to continue to resuscitate with IV fluids. Um, so their study also found that patients with more restrictive fluids and early vasopressors had higher mortality rates. And the other study that I included in here was a prospective multicenter observational study that included 415 patients with septic shock, and they were classified into early and late groups according to if they got vasopressors within the very first hour of first resuscitative fluid load, so very early on. And they did find a higher 28-day mortality in patients that had vasopressors initiated within that first hour. Um, so find it difficult to answer this question because there's no definition of what's early 
um, and how early is beneficial versus harmful. So in this study, my thoughts are that perhaps there was still a volume deficit in these patients at that first hour that was masked by the vasopressors they used that uh, maintained perhaps an adequate blood pressure, but still these patients may have had suboptimal intravascular volume. Um, and it's only one observational study, so of course this is a significant limitation, um, but definitely an interesting find. Yeah, I love that you shouted out the Volume Chaser study, right? The SCCM Discovery Network, lots of, of familiar pharmacist author mm -hmm. names on that list. So a really great, a great multi-center kind of a prospective study there. Um, wrapping us up a little bit, talk about what's on the horizon to help us definitively answer this question. Because obviously there's a reason why we're having this in, in the Congress is that you can debate both sides and you could probably, right, come to a stalemate. So what kind of mm -hmm. things are, are, are coming to help us maybe more definitively answer this? Yeah, so there are multiple ongoing studies. One of them includes the ARISE fluids trial, and that includes a 1,000 patients with sepsis-induced hypotension, and it's being conducted in New Zealand and Australia. And they, similarly to other trials, randomized patients to early vasopressors and restrictive fluids versus a more liberal fluid strategy. And another study that also has a very similar design, uh, the early vasopressors in sepsis trial, is also randomizing, randomizing patients to early peripheral vasopressors versus what they're considering a standard of care. So we'll see what that ends up evaluating. Um, but their goal is to include over 3,000 patients with septic shock, so a lot larger um, patient populations here. So we can look forward to those results to further guide uh, care of these patients when it comes to fluid and vasopressor therapy. Well, everyone be sure to go kind of listen to this whole presentation to fuel up or press on uh, fluids versus vasopressors in the management of shock. Olivia, thanks for taking a few minutes out of your day to join us, answer a few questions, help highlight this uh, session in the SECM Digital Congress. Greatly appreciate your time. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. And our next special guest highlighting some of the Digital Congress presentations heading into 2024 SECM Congress. Uh, this is in the updates in the acute management of oncologic emergency sessions. And we are privileged to be joined by Heather May and uh, talking about her presentation, Anticoagulation Considerations in Critically Ill Oncology Patients. So Heather is a critical care pharmacist in the immunocompromised ICU at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Heather, welcome back. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. Thanks for having me again. Uh, open invitation, always, you know that. But uh, let's get into this presentation here because I think this is such a, talk about a broad topic and how this was probably fairly challenging to try to shorten in such a small duration. But I think a topic that's so important, so many of us, not in kind of the immunocompromised hemonc world, have questions sometimes, especially about anticoagulation. So as we get into it, generally speaking, how different actually is the management of anticoagulation in critically ill oncology patients? Because I think many of us assume it's very different, but is that actually the case? I think what's most different here is the strength of the indication for specifically VTE prophylaxis and treatment, because 
when you're dealing with patients who have a malignancy, the risk for VTE and the clinical significance and the poor outcomes that are associated with it really is so high. And so even when you're looking at patients who frequently experience anemia, thrombocytopenia, they're at high risk for bleed, we really push the issue of VTE prophylaxis and treatment beyond what I think maybe a lot of people might be comfortable with. And so that's one of the things that I think is unique about this particular population. So as you mentioned the topic of prophylaxis, um, is there a preference in this patient population between low molecular weight heparin and unfractionated heparin? This is one of those things that seems like such low-hanging fruit, uh, but really is such an important question because it's something that I have the opportunity to intervene on a lot as a pharmacist. So there is for medical patients or medical admissions amongst patients with solid tumors or hematologic malignancies, there is a significant preference for low molecular weight heparin over unfractionated heparin for prophylaxis. And when you have somebody that's admitted to an oncology service first and then comes to the ICU, you'll often inherit them already on a low molecular weight heparin for prophylaxis. But when somebody starts in the ICU first, this is one of those things that I'm often bringing up with the medical team. Hey, we need to think about switching this patient from an unfractionated heparin, which has been chosen by our ICU team, over to low molecular weight heparin. And so I talk a little bit about the evidence for that. Um, and it is kind of a mindset switch for critical care practitioners that uh, the onc teams and the heme teams often have more kind of an embedded understanding of. I think sometimes maybe I think what happens is from the medical side, we assume everyone's going to get some sort of AKI at some point. And so everyone's trying to think, hey, let's do this and try to do no harm. But in reality, by choosing the lesser agent, right, we actually possibly are doing more harm as we're trying not to. Wow, that's a, that a tongue twister. Well, and even in the setting of AKI, you know, if you think about what the true threshold for quote unquote contraindication to anoxaparin is from a creatinine clearance standpoint, you know, a lot of people start to get uncomfortable uh, when the creatinine starts rising. And this is one place where I kind of waited out a little bit. I let patients prove to me that they really are going to um, be at that, you know, 30 mils per minute or lower for a sustained period of time before. Before I switch them. Well, and that makes sense. We won't get into it, but we obviously know all the limitations with creatinine, creatinine clearance, and all those things. So that that makes sense that you would kind of hold the fort there. And that's a really that's a, a great point to make because kind of like I think a lot of us think just trauma, you know, really making sure that we have that low molecular weight heparin, but kind of putting that this other patient population in as well. When we're still talking about low molecular weight heparin and shifting from prophylaxis to treatment. So is there any evidence for us and, you know, we don't necessarily need to go into it, but, but higher level speaking of oral anticoagulation for VTE treatment in oncology or is our workhorse still those low molecular weight heparins like anoxaparin? 
Fortunately for us, this is one area where we actually have some pretty good data that looks at the new direct oral anticoagulants and compares them to low molecular weight heparin. And so oftentimes in the HEMONC ICU world, I'm stuck with uh, kind of some smaller studies or retrospective data and things like that. But when it comes to VTE treatment, uh, we do have some good studies, some uh, more recently published studies, some pragmatic trials that looked at that issue. And so I talk about those in my talk, but there is some emerging evidence that supports the use of apixaban specifically. And so that's something to look into and some studies to read if this is a topic that interests you. And listen to this session when it becomes available. I think it's going to be in February um, is what is what I think I saw somewhere. So um, definitely going to be good stuff there. Kind of Wrapping up and thinking more kind of from a, I guess you'd say kind of global perspective and thinking about hold parameters, right? Because a lot of these patients, they're experiencing anemia, thrombocytopenia. So do you have general thresholds in your mind? Like if the hemoglobin's less than this or platelets less than this, or does it, does it vary greatly based on the patient indication, et cetera? I didn't know how global kind of those thresholds were throughout this population. Right. So this is an issue, specifically thrombocytopenia, that we deal with really commonly in this population. Uh, I'm going to put you on the spot for a quick second, Nick, and I'm going to ask you, if you were rounding in a medical ICU, uh, where do you think the platelets would be before you took somebody off a, a treatment dose um, anticoagulation treatment somebody, dose. yeah somebody that's anemic or uh, not anemic rather thrombocytopenic where where do you think you'd think about holding mm, this is controversial because i'd probably do less than 50k and i think the number might be somewhere in that 50 to 100k but my number tends to be 50k barring other things happening all right. Well, you know what? I think that's uh, fairly brave of you, really, because um, I talk with people who, you know, anytime the platelets fall below 100,000, you know, they start real nervous and you know for me somebody that's got a hundred thousand platelets is like swimming in them they've got some to spare they should give this some to their neighbors you know and so um i that was uh i think a very brave and cutting edge of you um i'm not sure that everybody is is quite like that so the uh hold parameters you know when you think about hemoglobin it's really about active bleeding primarily you know depending on the type of malignancy you can see patients with hemoglobins chronically in the sixes. Um, and so, you know, I think there the question is, how long has it been since their active bleed? You know, if they're at risk for bleeding again, is it a site that we can do something about and address? Platelets is a little bit of a different story. And there the thresholds change depending on the indication. And we have some actual data to support our choices for uh, holding some types of anticoagulation. So, if you listen to the presentation, I'll give you some specific thresholds, especially for uh, anticoagulation in the setting of atrial fibrillation and anticoagulation in the setting of VTE prophylaxis and treatment. Uh, the one that is really tough is um, dealing with anybody that's had acute coronary syndrome <laughs> and trying to decide what to do with dual antiplatelet therapy. And it's in always the fresh. It's not months oh, ago. Absolutely. It's it's in the past week or two, right, that you're deciding Yes, this. it's... <laughs> 
Exactly. Yeah, they've had their bone marrow transplant, and then they had an MI, and they went to the cath lab, and now their platelets are five. And yeah, that's uh, really tricky. And, you know, so much of that stuff is expert opinion based. So I'll give you some guidance, but um, there's still a lot of gray area here in this whole overall topic where a, a risk benefit assessment and some cross disciplinary communication is really key. And, you know, this is one thing that I talk about a lot with respect respect to teams, you really need to work together, not only the pharmacist with the ICU team, but the ICU team with the floor teams, you know, because we, um, just made a really difficult decision to electrically cardiovert somebody who was in the middle of their chemotherapy cycle. They actually had to get this chemotherapy because it was time sensitive, but we needed to cardiovert them. We needed to anticoagulate them. And so we worked very closely with the hematology team to set up a plan for what our thresholds were going to be for which anticoagulation and when we were going to give platelets to actually support continued anticoagulation. And so it's just so important to work with those teams on these issues that really touch the ICU care, but also their long-term hematologic care. Heather, we need to shout that from the mountaintops. Like the, I think so much of our issues in medicine come from a lack of communication and collaboration. You know, we do so much assumption staying in our own silos. So I could not co-sign that more if I tried. Um, now the, the talk anticoagulation considerations in critically ill oncology patients, uh, Heather, thanks for giving us a preview. This talk's going to be amazing and, uh, excited to see you in Phoenix. Thanks again for uh, joining us. Appreciate it. Of course. I look forward to seeing everybody there. So very excited for the next presentation that we get to highlight here, um, under the bigger, session in the Digital Congress, Integrating Palliative Medicine and Critical Care, What Every Intensivist Should Know. Um, and the title of this session, very lucky to be joined by Nicole Palm and her presentation, Pharmacologic Agents Used in the ICU for Palliation of Symptoms, What's New? Now, Nicole is a surgical critical care clinical pharmacy specialist at the Cleveland Clinic. Uh-oh, round two. Nicole, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Good. How are you? Thanks for having me, Nick. I'm doing great. No, th the, the thanks is all for me. And I said round two because we have another surgical critical care pharmacist. So I have to ask, when you're referring to the unit, is it the SICU or is it the SICU? I like the question. I'm curious to hear what Olivia answered since she's my partner. Um, I call it the SICU that has gotten me into trouble. We once had someone um, who was diagnosing a patient with SICU thyroid syndrome and thought it was SICU thyroid, not SICU thyroid. Um, so I can totally understand if other people have a preference for the other way. The spoiler alert for Olivia, she did not know that SICU was even a term that was <laughs> routinely used to let us know. So seems like SICU is, and that for the record, I don't think I said, and Olivia, I'm team SICU as well. So um, I think awesome. it, I think it just kind of fits here. Um, now I want to dive into this presentation because um, this is in terms of there are maybe other sessions that grab the headlines, but this to me is so important because it's something that no matter what ICU you're in, right, you're going to deal with some sort of palliative or palliation of symptoms. And I think a lot of it 
we have assumptions and we do from order sets, but maybe we don't know. So I'm very excited to highlight a few things from this presentation. So when we're thinking about palliative care and its pharmacotherapy, you kind of highlight that the two things we're already familiar with. Most of us know opioids and benzos, right? Benzodiazepines. But what are our other like pharmacotherapy targets and, and areas that we need to think about? Mm-hmm. I think that's a great question. Like you said, we very clearly recognize pain at the end of life and anxiety. I don't think we always recall that patients are still at quite high risk for delirium and agitation, um, and that, that that doesn't change with that transition to comfort care or palliative care. Um, other things to focus on, uh, hydration, nausea, constipation can be very distressing to the patient. So some of the other routine care things that we do in critical care that I think tend to get forgotten in those last few days or hours of life that can still be very distressing for the patients. So is there a preferred route of administration? Because I think in the critically ill, we kind of think generally in two buckets, IV and enteral, but are there other Mm -hmm. routes that we should consider using that are maybe preferable in this situation that we maybe don't use generally for our other patients? Mm -hmm. Yeah, great question. Now, if we have an IV in place already and they're not going to take that out, by all means, use it. Um, But a lot of times we're we're maybe going to lose that access and it's definitely painful to try to replace something to give meds. And these patients have a lot of dysphagia and discomfort with swallowing. So things to think about here. There are many patients who prefer rectal administration over oral. I know some, some of us may be surprised to hear that, um, but don't forget that you can use the rectum. And sublingual, I think, is a big route that I turn to and, and we see a lot um, in our unit. We can also see subcutaneous routes of administration, but a lot of this happens after the transition out of the ICU because, frankly, uh, our our system doesn't have these types of pumps set up to handle the doses, the concentrations um, that they do use in the, the outpatient hospice setting. Yeah, agreed. It gets into a med safety nightmare when you try to integrate that library into what you're normally doing. Yeah. Um, so I think... Sometimes we um, implement a less is more approach in these scenarios, but there are still things that we're adding on. So when we're thinking of that same idea, what are some interventions that are maybe falling out of favor? Things that we we will instinctively go towards that maybe we should not be using as much. That's a really great question, and I, I would love to pull the audience, if we could, and ask how many people have glycopyrrolate or sublingual atropine on their comfort care order sets. I know we do. We do, and hand up. frankly, <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's incredibly common, and there's actually really great data, a Cochrane review, that suggests that not only do these not do do anything to control the respiratory distress for the patients or reduce secretions, but they actually can be harmful. There's a number of, of, of risks of urinary retention, constipation that are already issues with these patients, and they're usually not able to tell us that they're experiencing those side effects. So this can cause distress at the end of life, which is obviously something we want to avoid. I hadn't necessarily, you bring up a really good point with those side effects, right? Things that we think of in all other circumstances, but maybe not. That's a really, really good point. Um, In this same realm, 
why is de-prescribing so important? And if you can, maybe give some examples of medications that we can click quickly be DCing and not be losing any sleep. Is there general categories or things that we can think about? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So just to to set the stage, as everyone's probably aware or, or can recall, at the end of life, we're not trying to prevent diseases. So globally, any medication the patient's on to try to prevent a downstream effect. So, you know, the GDMT therapies, aspirin for, for secondary prevention, all of that stuff can absolutely be, be taken off the mark. Um, we're really focused more on that symptom management. So things to think about, uh, your antihypertensives, your hypoglycemic agents. Um, at the end of life, a little bit of hyperglycemia is going to be more comfortable than hypoglycemia. Um, any types of vitamins. Um, usually there is recommendation to discontinue chronic steroids, which is one that always gives me pause because we're, we focus so much on the risk for withdrawal. Um, but there are recommendations to stop the steroids as well. Um, antibiotics is, is probably a, a pretty well-recognized one. Another one that I think is interesting um, and not always driven into practice is actually the acid suppressive therapies are recommended to be discontinued. And I think a lot of us tend to leave them on presuming that they're, they're helping with comfort for yes. the patient. Um, there's two really great references. Um, I'll highlight them in my presentation at Congress, but they're called OncPal and Stop Frail. One is derived out of kind of the oncologic palliative medicine arena, and then the other, an elderly adult, frail adult um, list. They have a lot of overlap, but they're a really great starting place for what can you get rid of and what should you keep. Well, Nicole, thank you so much. This is when we have presentations that talk about, you know, topics or things that we use commonly and are maybe just not as familiar with. I love diving into them. And and I think it's so important, some of the things you're highlighting, because we're trying to do everything we can to make them the most comfortable. Um, and there's clearly literature showing that some of the things we do can do it and some of the other things we can maybe still work on. So we only hit the, the surface of how awesome this presentation is. So definitely uh, in your digital Congress, integrating palliative medicine and critical care, what every intensivist should know. So Nicole, thank you so much for uh, taking a little bit of time and diving into this presentation for us. Of course, happy to and hope to see all of you at Congress. Thanks again to Olivia Marchanda, Heather May, and Nicole Palm, um, three uh, just awesome pharmacists, awesome people, but so glad they were able to come on and highlight their education um, that they're doing at the SCCM Congress, the digital version. So remember, uh, follow at Pharmacy to Dose. Lots of great updates throughout the conference. Even when, when a conference isn't happening, a great follow. Uh, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, X, whatever your your preference, we're there. Excited for 2024 SCCM Congress. See everyone in Phoenix. Until next time, I'm Nick Peters, and this is Pharmacy to Dose, the Critical Care Podcast. The Critical Care PRN optimizes drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that is critprn.accp.com.
Podcast provides general information only. Does not offer individualized medical or professional healthcare services, including pharmacy advice. The contents and materials in the podcast are not intended to be a substitute for inpatient pharmacy advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Use of the contents and materials on the podcast does not constitute a pharmacist-patient relationship. As a result, the information in and materials linked to this podcast are applied at the user or patient's own risk. Users and patients should consult their physician or personal healthcare professional. Users or patients should not ignore or delay seeking care because of something they heard on this podcast. In case of an emergency, the user or patient should contact their physician, call nine one one, or go to the nearest medical emergency facility. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are those of the host and guests and should not be interpreted to reflect the official position or policy of ACP or the Critical Care PRN. ACP and the critical care period disclaim any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or any other damages, including without limitation, loss of profits arising out of any use of reference to, reliance on, or inability to use the podcast, its contents, and materials.